With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Circle of Insight, a show where we tackle the toughest topics with the leading experts from around the world. And I'm Dr. Carlos. Well, today we seem to be having issues. We've been having issues for years in regards to terrorism. But can we do something about it? Well, there's a fabulous book by Dr. John Yu called Point of Attack, Preventative War, International Law, and Global Warfare. And we're going to get some insight to this. The world today is overwhelmed by wars between nations and within nations, wars that have dominated American politics for quite some time. Point of Attack calls for a new understanding of the grounds for war. In this book, John Yu argues that the new threats to international security come not from war between the great powers, but from the internal collapse of states, terrorist groups, the spread of weapons of mass destruction, and destabilizing regional powers. In point of attack, he rejects the widely accepted framework built on the UN Charter and replaces it with a new system consisting of defensive, preemptive, or preventative measures to encourage, encourage wars that advance global warfare. Professor Yu concludes with an analysis of the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, failed states, and the current challenges posed by Libya, Syria, North Korea, and Iran. So you're asking me, who is Dr. John Yu? He is the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. As a Justice Department official, John Yu advised the Bush administration on the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. He served as general counsel of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee and as a law clerk to Justice Clarence Thomas of the U.S. Supreme Court. Without further ado, let's welcome to the show Professor John Yu. Welcome, Professor. Oh, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Carlos, for having me on. So this is a fascinating book, and like I said, very timely. And I know you already released another one this year, uh, Liberty's Nemesis, The Unchecked Expansion of the State. We'll talk a little bit about that towards the end of the show. But before we get to that, what motivated you to write Point of Attack? Part of it was sitting back now that I'm back in the academy and out of government and looking back and thinking about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and then the constant threat of terrorism that we've been living under and how to think about uh, how we as a country should think about these different threats and how we should respond. Uh, what worries me in part is that for the under the Obama administration, we have switched to a more defensive posture where we've been pulling our uh, forces and influence away out of the world in the hopes that it would uh, withdraw the United States from a lot of these disputes that um, are at the center of these fights between different religious groups. And I don't think that's uh, worked. I think actually that we need to take a more proactive and what I argue in the book, a preventative stand to prevent uh, terrible things from happening in the world abroad, which eventually come to affect us now at home. 
Let me ask you this in the question. form of things like Riverside or in the form of things like the Orlando tax. Yeah, definitely. Let me ask you this question in regards to being more proactive. Is that because of the failed policies that we've seen lately in foreign policy? Or is it? would you advise this years before as well? Well, I think uh, one thing that we have seen is the rise of ISIS, which should be uh, the nightmare for any of our government intelligence and military officers. We've got a terrorist group that I think is far more formidable, formidable and dangerous than al-Qaeda. They not just have operatives who want to sneak into the country and attack us, but they have population and territory and money and oil and resources under their control. And they've proven far more effective at persuading or inspiring homegrown terrorists to you know, to ally with them or to bear allegiance to them and then to carry the tax like the ones we saw in Riverside and Orlando. So I think that uh, that's a result. ISIS, I think, is a direct result of our decision to pull all troops out of Iraq and then not to intervene and try to remove Assad in Syria, which created this vacuum in Syria and Iraq, which allowed ISIS to emerge almost from um, immediately, so almost from overnight or out of nowhere to seize this huge amount of territory and to wield this kind of power against us. Yeah, that's amazing. You actually you uh, answered another question I was <laughs> I was going to have for you, which was the power vacuum comment because I have heard that from a lot of experts such as yourself. Um, I think even Donald Trump has mentioned it. Uh, he had the point of you know the world probably would be safer if we kept Hussein and Gaddafi still in power. Is that something you agree with there? I don't. I mean, I think I, don't, I think the world would still be a dangerous place, but a different kind of danger. I mean, we, we yeah. saw. Uh, Libya, for example, under Gaddafi, did have a you know weapons of mass destruction program that he turned over to us after the after he saw us succeed in Iraq, and of course we had the Iraq War Hussein who was you know, killing tens of thousands of his own. So I mean, the Trump comments value uh, stability, and I can't, I'm not saying that the United States should always just be in favor of the status quo and all the time. Um, in fact, I think the better answer for what's happened in the Middle East would be that Syria and Iraq are artificial countries. You know, they were drawn up by the British and French in the wake of World War One and the fall of the Ottoman Empire. And those borders don't really, they don't cohere with the way people there live with the regional or tribal or religious groups. And one way to think about what's been going on in the Middle East is that we've been trying to keep these borders intact and these countries intact that aren't real countries. And it's starting to fall apart. And so what I, what I would do if we were, I was back in the government is try to break up those countries into smaller pieces, into smaller units um, that can defend themselves more easily, where people want to live together. They don't, we're not forcing people who hate each other to try to live together and hopefully allow that to work out the tensions and hatreds there. Because that's, that's those tensions and hatreds which are eventually are coming over here and are causing the terrorist attacks that we've suffered, and I'm, I'm worried we're going to suffer more of them. I love that idea. What's the opposition to that idea? I, you know, I think uh, part of it has been the United States is kind of in the Middle East. We've always supported the status quo, as you, you know, as, as Trump kind of is alluding to. Uh, you know, we we do support countries staying intact. Um, you know, people don't remember this, but when the Soviet Union fell, actually the United States for a while wanted to keep the Soviet Union together and not let it fall apart into all these different countries, which. I think it's actually been better for the United States now that we did let it collapse. Um, and I think we have that same policy in the Middle East, that we 
want Iraq and Syria to stay together. We don't want to see, you know, we didn't want Yugoslavia to fall apart at first either. So the United States, our, our diplomats tend to be these kind of pro-status quo people. But I just don't think that recognizes the reality on the ground in the Middle East. So you look at Iraq, you've got three groups of people who really hate each other and don't want to live together. You have the Shiites, who are the majority of the Sunnis, and you have the Kurds. Why not just let them slip up into three countries? Let them defend themselves. Let them have their own militaries, and uh, you know, let them if they want to fight between themselves, they can continue. But you know, we were spending troops and money, blood and treasure to keep that country together. And Syria, same thing is going on right now. You've got several minority groups that don't want to live together, uh, and that's and that country is breaking up too. If we step away and do nothing, then you're going to see people take advantage of that take advantage of that kind of disorder, which is why we have ISIS now. That's a fabulous point, fabulous point. In regards to Syria, there are some people um, that think that we should keep Assad as the leader of that country. I know Russia is trying hard to do that. Um, would that be the best, or do you think still dividing up Syria into different parts and having a, keeping Assad to one area, keeping uh, the, uh, the other groups in other areas? What do you think going on in Syria? Yeah, good point. I mean, it's a good way. Yeah, you know, Syria is a hard problem to address. I think uh, the worst thing we we've done is what we're doing now, which is almost nothing. Uh, even though we are, uh, you know, claiming to be intervening against ISIS. If you look at the rate of uh, bombing sorties that our, I think our planes are doing about three a day at most, uh, and many of our planes are returning without dropping their. Uh, their payloads, uh, which compares to something like a normal rate, which if we were in Kosovo, uh, where, you know, actually what I'm talking about, it did happen in Yugoslavia. It did break up into smaller units and a peace did come. Or in Iraq, you know, our, our Air Force is dropping, you know, hundreds, you know, hundreds of sorties a day. So I think uh, in Syria, I don't think, I mean, it's a question of Assad's never going to be in charge of Syria as it was ever again. I mean, he's lost control of a large part of the country. And so the question is, what do we do about that? Do we try to rebuild Syria into artificial borders and then put in charge a minority, you know, the Alawi minority, which no one else in the country wants to live under? And they, uh, you know, one, one reason that these dictators were around in the Middle East is they had to use terrible force to keep all these regional and ethnic and religious groups um, living together. They, you know, they had to force them to do it because they don't want to live together willingly. So if you let if you let the country develop, then maybe Assad and his family controls a small part of what used to be Syria, and then maybe uh, Sunnis uh, control a different part, and maybe Kurds control a different part. It can't get worse than it is now. I mean, Syria is a human rights disaster on a par or worse than what happened in the former Yugoslavia in the '90s. Now, that's absolutely that's a great point. Now, in your book, we t you talk about preemptive strikes, you talk about preventative measures, defensive measures. Um, how would you apply these to this kind of, uh, I don't want to, I, I won't call them Morpheus, or more like a tentacle network ISIS. How, how would those measures work against ISIS? Or would they work yeah. at all? Yeah, so one problem I think with the international system, and it's true about the way we as Americans think, is that we're, you know, we think of war as something that we should only engage in, in self-defense. You know, even though in the United States we've had many, many wars that were not really wars of self-defense, we like to tell ourselves they're wars about self-defense. And so we're uh, slow you know, to rouse, and we use force only after a number of things have happened to us. So you could see even the 9-11 attacks 
were just the worst in a string of attacks on the United States by al-Qaeda. And we really didn't wake up and decide to root them out until a terrible attack had already occurred on our soil. You might say that's what's going on with ISIS right now. We're suffering a string of terrible but still low casualty attacks compared to 9-11. But you can see their building. You know, you can see each one is getting worse and worse. And so my, my simple argument is that we should try to intervene earlier, use less force, but try to stop these groups from you know, building up to the point where they can wage a kind of 9-11-style uh, attack on us, which means you know, using force abroad, using force earlier, like against, as you said, pointing out ISIS, I think uh, for a long time, for several years, we didn't take ISIS seriously. Um, we didn't use force early on against Assad. You know, maybe we could have removed Assad right away early on using less force. Syria would not be encountering the millions of people fleeing the country now and I think well over 100,000 deaths and wounded uh, now in their civil war. If we had decided to act early on, it's sort of like a preventive medicine, right? <laughs> you know, you're, you, you, you have medical issues, right? You can do a little bit early on to prevent much worse disease from happening later. Um, and that's sort of what I'm arguing about for international affairs. But we don't think that way as Americans. And our international system is built more on a, you can only respond when you've been attacked first. And I think that's that's sort of like the kind of medicine we try to save everybody in the last year of their lives. Yeah, Syria ended up being a, a, a gift to ISIS, unfortunately. Hello, my name's Matt, and I'm an addict. My mom was addicted to prescription pills when I was very young before I even turned one. Are you or someone you know struggling with alcohol or drug addiction? Has everyone given up on you or your loved one? The caring staff at Elite Care understands and treats you as a whole person. We offer individual and group therapy, holistic healing such as yoga, nutrition and spirituality, medication management and PTSD treatment. By building upon your strengths and rebuilding broken bonds, we help you begin a successful life. With our staff of licensed psychotherapists and doctors, you can be assured of the highest level of care. Elite Care is the best option for long-term rehabilitation from drugs and alcohol. Contact 888-511-0607 for more information. Let me ask you this. In regards to the, the current administration now, uh, you made some comments in regards to preventative measures um, and uh, knowing your enemy, I guess you, you kind of insinuated that. The comments, I, and I don't know, I, with him I can't tell if he's if he's trying to create an image for the American people or he honestly believes the things. I, I, I don't know. We never really know what's in, in the hearts of man unless you're the shadow. But um, Obama mentioned, obviously, ISIS was the JV team, I think about it last year, a year and a half ago. Uh, do you think that was a real belief? Do you think he was trying to downplay their importance to the people? Uh, and, and if he was, was it a really big mistake thinking that they were? Yes, I think it was a terrible mistake, but I think it was an accurate reflection of the time of what he thought. Because I think his worldview, unfortunately, is that the reason we get attacked is because of our involvement in the world. And so he followed for, up until that point, about six years, a strategy of steadily withdrawing us from places all around, you know, took us completely out of Iraq, drew down our troops in Afghanistan, you know, famously cooperated with the Russians to not overthrow Assad, but to keep him in power. 
And the, you know, so in his worldview, by withdrawing, we're taking ourselves out of those, you know, you know, those disputes abroad. Doesn't people won't have reason to attack us anymore? But uh, and so then you could say things like ISIS is a JV team, or these other terrorist groups shouldn't worry us. Why would they want to attack us? But I think he doesn't realize, understand the terrorist threat. I mean, I think, he, you know, this happens to all the time, all time to people in government. They become so uh, committed to their ideologies. They start to look at the world blinkers on and they can't see what's really coming down the road. And so it's not a surprise that, to me that after he says that, then ISIS explodes into that vacuum, fills that vacuum, as you pointed out, that arose in Syria, fills that vacuum uh, in Iraq. And we're taken completely by surprise. The other thing that happens, of course, is if you withdraw troops, you withdraw our presence, we get no good intelligence about what's going on in that part of the world anymore. And so, again, it was a, an intelligence failure. Uh, and then, we're unfortunately, we're living with the cost of it, which is Riverside. I mean, San Bernardino. I don't know if you've seen it. San Bernardino, which is Orlando. And, and uh, maybe even the Boston Marathon bombs and, and maybe things that will be worse. I hope not. No, absolutely. You make an excellent, excellent point. Because I have heard that argument over and over again. The only reason they're attacking us is because we're over there, or we've attacked them, or we want their oil, whatever it may be. But that does change a lot your military strategy, doesn't it? Yes. Well, first of all, there I think uh, a number of these groups are going to attack us no matter what our posture is. Absolutely. Not there. I mean, they, they, they hate us just because Israel and Saudi Arabia are our allies. You know, if you look at what they actually say and write, Al-Qaeda writings, Muslim Brotherhood, uh, you know, ISIS, they think that we're really some kind of power uh, secretly propping all these governments up because we want to refight the Crusades. I mean, it's crazy. It really is kind of, you know, but it's this kind of millennial thinking that goes back to a worldview that's really from the Middle Ages and these, you know, centuries-old fights between the Christian world and the Muslim world. And they think that we're still trying to fight that kind of war with them. <laughs> and so because yeah. of that, they, they're going to continue to attack us because they think we're behind all of the opponent, the enemies, the frustrations that they have in the uh, Middle East. So actually pulling back and really trying to... I'm not saying the United States should occupy that part of the world, but we should be interested in supporting our allies, and we should be, you know, fierce enemies to our opponents. Uh, and that force, we have to be engaged. And that's one last thing about that's the lesson we should have learned at the end of World War II. I mean, you know, World War II in a way changed the way the United States thought about the world because until then we thought we could hide between behind two oceans, and that if we just stayed out of the world's problems, they wouldn't affect us. And World War II and since, we realized that with modern technology and weapons of mass destruction and missiles and, you know, all kinds of things, and globalization, the United States can't hide behind two oceans. We can't really withdraw anymore. That's an excellent point again. Um, I want to see if I can phrase this question correctly. Am I, am I get, I might be overthinking it too much and getting myself lost in my own question. But um, Hitler needed an enemy, and he picked an enemy with the Jews. This helped him galvanize his following, and this is, of course, a hypothetical. Is it too much to give this kind of uh, Machiavellian view to ISIS? And what I mean by that is they need an enemy. We're the perfect enemy. Western culture is ideal. It contradicts a lot of what ISIS's doctrines teach, and that helps them continue to funnel money, continue to grow support. Is that a valid theory? Yeah, that's a really good point. 
point. It's a, there's a psychological term for this, isn't there? Like projection or something like this. <laughs> yeah. You're the expert on this, not me. <laughs> projection but, is definitely one of them, yes. Yeah, because yeah, you know, if you look at the world where they live, you know, they, if you look at the Islamic world, they were the more advanced society during our Middle Ages, during the Dark Ages of Western civilization. And then in the modern world, you know, ever since the 1700s or 1800s, they've been in a steady, long decline. And now they look around and they see countries just dependent on natural resources. Many countries in Africa are poor. There's very little economic hope. There's very little progress. It's strange. Instead of, you know, they should blame themselves, blame their governments, seek to reform in the way that occurred in Asia. I mean, if you looked in 1960 at Asia and the Middle East, you might have thought that the Middle East would be the more successful part of the world. You know, they could copy the kind of reforms that people in Asia follow, but instead, people in the Middle East have taken on a sort of religious fundamentalist uh, view to explain what's happened to them, and that means they blame Christians, and they blame the United States as the leading Western power. Uh, but it's really, they're blaming us for things that uh, have to do more with themselves and their own self-governance. That's true. That's a good point, too. Very good. A lot of great points. But Dr. John Yu, everybody, he's the author of the book we're talking about right now, Point of Attack, Preventative War, International Law, and Global Warfare, and a new release he just released this year, uh, Liberty's Nemesis, The Unchecked Expansion of the State. Both must-read books. Professor Yu, we have a few minutes left. Um, this is a question I heard. I think I know the answer, uh, but we keep we keep hearing it. Is it important for Obama or anybody to really claim the term radical jihadi or radical jihadism. Is it really that important or is this just kind of wordplay by politicians? You know, it, to me, it's, I, I think that it's more important than words. I think that uh, you know, Obama's clearly right when he says, well, if I call it radical Islam or not, that doesn't have anything to do with strategy. Uh, but it does reflect how you think about the problem. And so, if you think of, if you don't admit that it has something to do with Islam, as it's interpreted by some people in the Middle East, and clearly not a majority of people, uh, majority of Muslims, but some people in those, if you refuse to understand it as linked to this kind of strain of Islam, then how are you going to develop the strategy and tactics to stop it successfully? I mean, you, well, it's not, it can't possibly be random events. <laughs> just by network of disgruntled people. I mean, there's a reason that they're acting. So think about, like, World War II or something, you know, some of the great threats that, you know, we the United States has faced before. I mean, wouldn't, would it be, would, 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 would you imagine FDR refusing to say fascism <laughs> or <Yeah>. Nazism, <laughs> right? He might just say, oh, we're having a war against, uh, you know, you know, angry German young men. No, I mean, you have to, you know, part of the reason why the words I think aren't important is because it, it shows how you think about the problem. And if you correctly identify it, then that allows you to shape the tactics and strategy to face it. Not, not just, uh, you know, abroad, of course, but at home. I mean, one of the things about it being a religious problem is that there, you know, it involves domestic counterterrorism policy too. And that's, I, I think that might, I, but I, I really don't understand this reluctance to call the problem what it is. It really puzzles me. And you, know, you saw Hillary Clinton has no problem with it. I mean, she's, she has said, you know, I'm, ha I'm happy to call Islamic radical terrorism. That's what it is. Yeah, she didn't have too much of a problem once Trump pushed her into that one. Um, and it's interesting, too, because I know 
uh, right now, Trump is proposing the ban on Muslims, which he's changed his position. Uh, not changed, how we say he more fine-tuned it uh, into being countries that have terrorist issues uh, or issues with terrorism, better said. Is that something you, you think is a smart move right now? Because it is kind of hard to vet people from over there. You can't just go to a DMV or a pre- previous employer to do a background check. Yeah, so I I think that um, saying that I, uh, that the United States was going to ban all, ban all Muslims was uh, potentially unconstitutional, but certainly was a terrible idea. Uh, I think, you know, that it's certainly constitutional to restrict uh, entry from different countries, though. Uh, so the United States has long done that, I, you know, for good or ill. I mean, the United States used to have uh, basically a, a zero quota on immigration from Asia until mm-hmm. the 1965 Immigration Act, and it's had varying quotas on Mexico over the years, and, uh, you know, has, you know, what, so I know there's nothing, you know, inherently wrong or unconstitutional about setting quotas from different countries, and of course you would want to consider national security uh, when you did that. Um, so I don't, I don't think, and I think that's a much better way to think about the problem is not, uh, you know, the problem is all Muslims because we said most of the, you know, the great majority of Muslims are peaceful. This is not, this is a problem with a small part of, uh, people, of interpretation of Islam by a small group. And so those, that does seem to be localized in some countries. And so I don't think there's a problem with saying maybe we should pause immigration from Syria, for example, or Afghanistan, if that's where we thought the problems were coming from. But it really is country-centric there right now, not just all Muslims. That's a good point. Now, Dr. Yu, we thank you so much for being here. My last question, what's your main, uh, what's the main message you want to give out to people about your book, Point of Attack? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about Liberty's Nemesis for about a minute, and then we're out of here. <laughs> well, thanks, Dr. Cuz. I mean, the, the message I want to, the people to remember about Point of Attack is that it is like thinking about uh, health care in a way that, there are some things you should do early on. They might be a little bit painful to save yourself terrible things in the future. And just like we undertake preventive medicine now to prevent terrible diseases happening to us in the future, same thing I think we should think about in our foreign affairs is we may need to use force more often, but at very low levels now, to stop things like ISIS coming down the road later. That's a great point. And we're, now, Liberty's Nemesis, what does that mean? What is going on here with Liberty's Nemesis? Oh, thanks. Well, this is the, you know, the issues I study uh, in domestic policy, which has been the growth of the administrative state. So I think uh, it's not directly related to some of the issues we were just talking about, but you know, I think one of the greatest threats to our liberties, our individual liberties at the United States is not, in my mind, counterterrorism policy. I think that's one things President Obama is worried about. Um, I think the great threat to our liberties has just been this vast expansion of the federal government and administrative agencies. Not just over the, it's been accelerated in the past eight years, but it's been going on for decades. But, you know, under President Obama has really reached its pinnacle in things like Obamacare and expansion of regulation over the financial industry, over consumer, over credit cards, everything. The federal government is just on autopilot now, just steadily expanding. And I think every time the government expands its regulatory reach over a new subject, you know, we all have less space to act to make our own decisions, uh, which is, I think, which was the original promise of America. So it was a country where 
uh, you know, individual liberty and our own decisions and self-reliance were what important, not what the government told us to do. That sounds a great book to me. Liberty's Nemesis, The Unchecked Expansion of the State. You have quite a list of people who have written in that book as well. Everybody, Point of Attack, Preventative War, International Law, and Global Warfare by Professor John Yu. You definitely want to get this book to read. Thank you so much, Professor, for being here. Hey, Dr. Coase, it's wonderful to be on your program. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. It was fabulous to get your insight. Remember, everybody, our motto is simple. Invest in knowledge because it yields the highest returns. That's it for now. And also catch our web TV show, Circle of Insight, on TherapyCable.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.